Welcome to the High Fidelity Podcast. I am your host, Bridget Connery, coming to you from the dialed studio at Hula on the shores of beautiful Lake Champlain in Burlington, Vermont. In today's episode, we speak with Catherine Elmer, the co-founder and co-director of Spoonful Herbals, an educational nonprofit based in Burlington, Vermont. We peer into her perspective as a queer, femme, green witch on the roles that colonialism, patriarchy, and capitalism have played in suppressing the feminine, and how that shows up in mainstream representations of the cannabis plant and marketplace. Grab yourself a cup of tea and settle in for an unconventional conversation about cannabis. We'll be right back. Hey there, and welcome back. March is Women's History Month. Undoubtedly, there is a lot to talk about when it comes to women's influence and position in the cannabis industry. As of late, the numbers don't look so great. Women's representation at the executive level has generally been coming down or remaining stagnant in the past few years. According to a 2022 report by MJ Biz Daily, women held 23.1% of executive positions in the cannabis industry last year. This is down from a high of 36.8% in 2019. Things are worse for racial minorities, who saw a drop in executive roles from 28% to 12.1% over the same time frame. Both of those are considerably lower than the average for all U.S. businesses, which according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics in 2021 were 29.1% for women and 20.1% for minorities. This downward trend in leadership positions is in opposition to an upward trend in women's consumption of cannabis over the past few years. Multiple consumer reports show women gaining on men as a percentage of the consumer base, especially among Gen Z and millennials. Women, however, tend to spend less money and spread those dollars over a variety of product categories, including beverages, edibles, sublinguals, and topicals, while men spend more heavily on flour and concentrates though younger women appear to be catching up with men in these past two categories. Surveys show that women are interested in cannabis from a wellness perspective to improve areas like sleep, anxiety, and sexual pleasure, where men report primary use for social interactions and to relax. This may explain why men tend to favor THC-dominant products while women purchase more CBD. This begs the question of whether the customer experience and the product selection in the marketplace is supporting women in their exploration of the space, and what we can do to make it more inclusive. These are complex questions, and the answers are not simple. Increasing women's access to capital, electing more women into public office, and creating equal opportunity in the workforce are part of the equation. Education in plant-based, folk, and indigenous systems of medicine and a feminist reframing of history are also essential. To take a closer look at these important influences, we invited Catherine Elmer into the studio. Catherine is a clinically trained community herbalist, a national board-certified health and wellness coach, and an activist artist. She is a co-founder of Burlington's Rail Yard Apothecary 
and currently serves as co-director and clinical herbalist at Spoonful Herbals, also in Burlington. She lectures on herbal medicine, integrative health, and food systems at both the University of Vermont and Vermont State University. In addition, she manages the medicinal plant gardens on UVM campus and is the faculty advisor for the UVM Student Herbalism Club. Personally, and perhaps more importantly, Catherine identifies as a queer, femme, green witch. We talk to her about what this means to her and how it shapes her perspective in this conversation. Catherine Elmer, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bridget. It's great to be here. Great. All right. Today, we're going to be talking about the feminist perspective on the cannabis plant and the cannabis industry, you know, how we've evolved with this plant over time and what the feminist viewpoint is of that and kind of the implications for the market that's developing right now and how we can shift it um, so that it's more inclusive. And so I thought it would be good to kind of start with your background as an herbalist and you identify as queer femme green witch, Mm. you know, which I think probably scares some people Mm. (laughs) Um, and even me, you know, scares me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And now let's unpack that a little bit. Like, yeah. what does that mean to you and how does it inform what you do? Yeah. Well, thank you for starting with that because I feel like my typical introductions, especially in a higher education space, is much more of what I would call a colonial framework of introducing myself. What are my titles? What are my degrees? And it's really refreshing to just feel my feet on the earth right now um, and identify as someone who grew up in this place so-called Vermont, unceded Abenaki territory. And, you know, queerness for me is, it's what you might expect. It's about my sexuality and how I relate to people. But it really comes from my experience as an ecologist and acknowledging the ways that colonial heteronormative frames have been applied to our interpretations of animals and plants. And it's much more frisky out there than (laughs) I was taught in my ecology classes. And, you know, I did have a formative experience working with Bicknell's thrush in the Green Mountains and as one of my first careers as an ecologist. And Bicknell's thrush is very non- heterosexual. Um, There are females that set up territories, mate with as many males as possible, whether they even identify as female or male, you know, sort of the the parts match up to make babies. Um, This is a bird we're talking about. This is a bird, the Bicknell's thrush, (laughs) similar to the hermit thrush, which is the, the state bird. And, you know, I think for me, it's also queerness as a frame that we look at the world and questioning these binaries and these reductionist ways of looking at how our bodies work, looking at how our societies function, and particularly how we view nature. And then the the witch part of it, um, it's taken some healing to claim that. I identify as somebody who carries burning times trauma in my body, which has definitely been a part of my process of unpacking internalized misogyny, fear of the forms of power that I feel comfortable expressing in the world. But the word Wicca comes from the European tradition, um, which means to shift or shape consciousness. And so as a healer, as an educator, that's very much the way that I use words and also plants. That's the green aspect to shift our perception of reality. And that can be as simple as inhaling some lavender. The scent of lavender brings us back into a centered 
and balanced nervous system allows us to be more present in our body and in our environment. So working with plants as allies to shift consciousness to educate and heal is a central part of my work. And that healing is very much at many levels, not just individuals in my clinical practice, but also looking at ways to heal society to make it more inclusive, more joyful, and um, yeah, more inclusive and joyful. (laughs) So I'm curious, when you say that you experience the burning times on a cellular level, is that how you put it? I identify as carrying burning times trauma in my body. Yeah. Yes. And what is that how do, you, how do you feel that? Yeah. I mean, I think my first known experience of it was when I started teaching about herbal medicine. Mm. And the first time that I had a larger platform to teach about it, I was teaching a session at the NOFA conference about the superfoods of Vermont mm. and carried a very scientific lens. I consider myself a recovering scientist because that was my training. But now I understand <laughs> that science is just one of many yes. valuable ways of knowing. Yeah. And I lost my voice. Like the day before I was supposed to teach about it, I ended up using a microphone because 80 people showed up and having students planted in the audience to read certain scripts of things that I knew I was going to say. And there was one other time that it happened. And I had a conversation with another wise woman member of my community, Jillian Comstock of Meta Earth Institute. And she just straight out said, you know, maybe because you were killed in a past life for speaking your truth. And it just landed in my body the way that truth sometimes does. And can, you know, it, can it also be, I'm just trying to uh, grok this too myself, is that it also could be generational, intergenerational, yes. you know? I mean, you could have lineage back to that time too, and yes. you're holding that trauma in yourself. Yeah. So the way it is past, I mean, we talk about that, mm-hmm. how we carry the trauma of our, in our forebears DNA. in our yeah. DNA. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and I, I identify it with my blood lineage. I also identify with soul mm-hmm. lineage. I know I have Joan of Arc in my spirit council. So there's, there's a lot of memories at yeah. different levels in my body about being persecuted for having a certain kind of power that right. currently folks are very uncomfortable with. Right. And I teach about the history of the burning times in my herbalism class at the University of Vermont. And every semester, there are students who say, why didn't we learn about this? And I think it's one of the primary roots of misogyny in our culture right now. And the witches who were burned were the medicine keepers, a lot of them, Yes. right? Yeah. Yeah. So as somebody who identifies as a Western keeper, who is a white settler, there's a huge void in the cultural knowing that would have been passed down to me. Um, And, you know, I've often identified as feeling forced into sort of elderhood early, you know, sort of trying to find the the mentors who are elders. It was harder to Mm -hmm. find them. And I also teach about this and speak about it that I think one of the reasons that white folks participate in cultural appropriation is because of this void of knowledge, which is part of the full whole human experience, not having it because it was erased, it was suppressed, it was repressed, it is repressed. And so grasping for cultures that still have a relationship with those ancestral wisdom traditions Mm -hmm is part of why white folks participate in cultural appropriation. So for me, my commitment to reweaving and reconnecting to those traditions and in some ways recreating them for white people is also about social justice Mm -hmm. and removing the impulse to steal, borrow from other cultures because of the privileged identities that we have. 
Right. It should be to learn and to honor instead of just steal. Yeah, and, and collaborate. Yeah, exactly. And and we can't really fully show up as allies and collaborators if we if we don't have that orientation, that sort of full wholeness, which includes that that feminine power. Right. Um, and and I also want to say that for me, feminism, feminine power, it's not about gender necessarily. I mean, it's definitely a place to welcome cis females and also but also femme identifying folks of any gender and it's about all bodies because we carry both energies right and in some ways i see misogyny as harming cis men because there's there's way less permission to show up as nurturing sensitive exactly restful exactly yeah, yeah. okay and so let's take that framework and let's apply it to cannabis and how we have evolved with the plant and kind of like the history that we've shared with it and how this disruption has kind of formed. I mean, that was one disruption. Of course, then we had the prohibition that happened here in the United States that has also kind of formed what the, the experience of cannabis is right now in our culture. And so talk a little bit about how you perceive, you know, what a feminist viewpoint of the market would be and some of the changes that we need, some of the education that we need to do in order to kind of... Um, change our our perspective right now yeah I mean some elements that I think are relevant is thinking about the marketplace and the workplace and how inclusive it is as an environment for people who identify as feminist or black indigenous people of color many of the cultures and and the the ways that I identify with black indigenous people of color and their their baseline cultures is that they have not suppressed the feminine quite as much. And, you know, Audre Lorde is credited with sort of grouping together patriarchy, misogyny, capitalism, empire, all in sort of one one bubble. Um, So making the marketplace more inclusive for femmes is also taking strides to make it more inclusive for black indigenous people of color in many ways. Obviously, I'd love to hear perspectives from (laughs) BIPOC people on that. Yes. Um, So speaking about the cannabis marketplace, one of the things I've noticed here in Vermont as we seek to create spaces for women and people of color to benefit from the cannabis market, which is an issue, and they haven't benefited from cannabis proportionally as much as cis white men, is there is this assumption that just having folks who are BIPOC or having women in the business is going to solve the problem. So there's, um, they're creating spaces and allowing BIPOC and femme-owned business, women-owned businesses. Mm -hmm. They're prioritizing them right now. They're prioritizing them in those spaces, but not necessarily addressing the culture. And what I've experienced in higher ed and also watching my mom work in state government is that if the culture is not balanced in terms of masculine and feminine values, then it becomes a toxic workplace for people who are participating in them. Right. So that's one issue. Right. Is that you're basically inviting people into a system that ignores a huge part of their humanity. And, you know, that goes for cis, cis white men as well. Right. Right. So that's, that's one issue. Right. I think the other layer, which feels really important, is that cannabis as a plant in itself is such a perfect example of a sovereign marriage between the masculine and feminine. And the way the plant has been perceived, at least through prohibition and before prohibition, and this is also through the biomedical model, has really emphasized the THC, which I consider to be more of the masculine part Mm -hmm. of the plant. Mm -hmm. It kind of takes you out of your body into your mind. Whereas when we look at some of the other components of the plant, 
CBD, the terpenes, they're much more grounding. And there are a lot of aspects of the cannabis plant, especially a whole plant that's rooted in a place, rooted in your backyard, that is very nurturing, mothering, and very yin. Um, one of the frames that I look through is the Chinese framework of yin and yang. And I think that the way cannabis has been perceived over the last hundred years and the way it's continuing to be marketed tends to overemphasize the more masculine or yang attributes of the plant. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe that's what our society needs right now. And I don't think it fully honors the gifts of the plant. Right. All right. There's a lot yeah. <laughs> that you just talked about there. I want to go back and maybe tease out some of the the themes there. And so, and getting back, I guess, first to the plant, let's start with that and what it was traditionally used for. In my understanding, at least in the U.S. pharmacopoeia, how it was used before prohibition is it was primarily used for women's health issues. You know, it was a medicine used for women's health issues. And, you know, then we had prohibition and that all went away, became illegal. And when the legal marketplace resurfaced, those kinds of products and those kinds of conversations weren't happening. Mm. Uh, we lost that connection. And during Prohibition, generally we can say it was dominated by male breeders, men. And the plant changed during that time. You know, it went from a plant that was not super high in THC, but had a real combination of different cannabinoids and terpenes and other phytochemicals that, quite frankly, we don't even know what we lost when we started to breed it for the drug component of it, which was the THC. And so that's still driving the marketplace. You know, it was built during that time and it's still thriving. It's one of the things that I'd really like to see change. You know, even now when I talk to retailers here, you know, if you don't have a, a flower that's over 20%, people aren't buying it, mm. you know. <laughs> and that's not a product for me. You know, it's not a product for a lot of women I know, too, who want something that's lower in THC, more balanced, and a better terpene profile that is actually going to, you know, service the needs that we're looking for. Mm. You know, I think that's just one place, too. I think that it's not just the high THC flower. It's the high, t high THC concentrates. It's the... Even the... the the approach of like extracting from the plant and picking it apart and putting it back together instead of using it in its whole plant form. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just curious, like what you think about that? Yeah, <laughs> well, there's a lot there. I mean, I think the word extraction in and of itself is important to center on. And it's a word that we use in herbalism a lot. But, you know, the, the basic principle of extraction is we're identifying something that we as humans are determining to be more valuable than other aspects of it, and we're focusing on that. And for me, there's a metaphor there for colonialism and capitalism and the harm that we as humans experience in these times when public schools or our professional settings identify certain attributes in us and our personalities that are more valuable and pushing us to overemphasize those and suppress others. So we're kind of in this cultural frame, and herbalism is guilty of that, of identifying things that are more valuable and fragmenting plants, fragmenting people. And so a lot of the work that I do in my teaching and, and Spoonful Herbals and the way we approach the plants is approaching them as whole sentient beings, creating spaces where we as humans mm -hmm. can show up and be our whole sentient selves um, and really teaching sovereignty from that place. Right, right. Which is, which is anti-colonial and, and we're 
we're open about that. Right. You know, that's something that's very important for the work that we do. Yeah. And in herbalism, generally, you know, we're not pulling things, we're not extracting and putting things back together in formula. We're actually putting plants together in formula, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. So we talked about this actually uh, earlier in the week, too, about how, you know, the, the cannabis model that we have right now tends to be a little bit more pharmaceutical-like in how we're, we're doing it and how that's what a lot of the people who are coming into the market, that's what they're used to. Mm-hmm. They're used to that allopathic pharmaceutical model. Um, and they need their cannabis to be that way too, mm-hmm. in order to understand it, in order for it to feel like it's safe, in order to feel like they're going to get the same product every time. And I think it's important. I mean, how do I want to say this? Um, you know, there's a lot of talk and it's important talk in the industry about how whole plant medicine is super important and that that's the best medicine and that ultimately we're getting the most benefit when we have that kind of experience with the plant. And from my experience in the industry and even in the medical market, so many people weren't ready for that conversation of like really how we approach plant-based medicine. Mm. And they needed to be brought there gradually. Mm -hmm. Uh, And some people never get there. And so I think that there is a place for all of it. Like we actually need some of those products for people to be able to, to access the market and get a benefit. And hopefully we can start to educate people so that they can kind of broaden their experience with the plant and then maybe get into other plants as well. Mm. So, Yeah, something that comes up for me when you talk about that, you know, sort of the consumer orientation to certainty and, you know, control that, you know, is reflected in how we approach the plant. I mean, I think a lot of it has roots in, in the burning times and not a lot of folks know that the, you know, the father of modern science, Francis Bacon, was actively involved in the Inquisition as an inquisitor. Um, and a lot of his writing that um, sort of formed around developing the scientific method um, was deeply anti-feminist and anti-earth. It was about teasing out the earth's secrets. You know, that when I read it, it sounds like rape culture to me, right. really. And a lot of the sort of like overemphasis on masculinity overemphasizes control and this myth of certainty, which we now understand, you know, if you break something down into smaller and smaller parts, um, you actually can never get to complete certainty. Right. Um, and, you know, the feminine or, or yin approach um, is much more about trust. Yeah. So let's yeah. talk about yin and yang a little bit mm-hmm. more. How would you describe those two energies and, mm. and just go a little bit more into like how you see them represented in the cannabis plant. Yeah. I mean, first, I want to own that I am not from China. Yeah. Um, So speaking about yin and yang, I'm interpreting it through uh, a Western lens. And I learned about yin and yang theory from my teacher, Larkin Bunce, who um, studied at the Maryland University of Integrative Health, formerly Thai Sophia. And I now understand that one of the reasons I learned about this ancestral wisdom system, which looks at the balancing of masculine, feminine energies through the Chinese model, was that it had been recently accepted in the West as, you know, something legitimate. Mm-hmm. Um, in my own journey of unpacking ancestral knowledge traditions of my blood lineage, which is in the Celtic Isles and to some extent Nordic from Scandinavia, there are very equivalent models there as well that I'm in the process of unpacking, but they haven't been considered legitimate, I think, because of the persecution and suppression of those um, through colonialism. Mm -hmm. 
um, and, you know, Roman expansion and how that's played out. Um, so I just want to name that yeah. um, yin and yang is the system that I'm most familiar with and have used longer. But there are equivalent systems in um, the hoodoo and voodoo tradition, which comes from West Africa and through the African diaspora mm. in Ayurveda. And then more recently, I've been studying a tradition called Lyceum or the Path of Pollen from the Celtic Isles, which actually their sacred symbol is the Lemniscot or the infinity symbol. And the two wings of the infinity symbol represent masculine and feminine, past, okay. present. So this balance of kind of sun and moon, this duality is important and it's not a dualistic model. It's meant to be a cycle, just like a diurnal cycle between night and day. Got it. And that wholeness is reflected in those two poles and oscillating between those two poles. So just to compare yin and yang and kind of feminine and masculine energies, kind of the feminine approach to yin is much more about collaboration, whereas the sort of masculine side of that is more competition. Mm -hmm. The feminine side is more relationship and results is the opposite. Hmm. Um, body and mind. And so as I'm describing these, you can see that they're meant to complement each other. Right. It's not that one is better than the other. The yin is not supposed to replace the yang, but finding better balance. Balance, exactly. Yeah. Let's see if there's a... So mystery is what's emphasized compared to certainty hmm. and more of the masculine side. I see scarcity as sort of the focus and a more masculine perspective with abundance. Hmm being kind of the known experience in the feminine. Masculine is more focused on the individual, feminine more on the collective. And then this sort of control and regulation as opposed to trust and also trusting in the sovereignty and the integrity of those involved right. rather than needing to control them. Right, right. And the, the plant you're saying is like a balance of two energetically and it becomes out of balance when we breed it. <laughs> breed it, when we breed it out of balance for certain things. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting to look at the trajectory of patriarchy and patriarchal world religion that one of the major shifts that happened 2000 years ago with the rise of Christianity, which, you know, basically overlapped and repressed a 4,000 year goddess tradition out of Sumeria and Mesopotamia was this sort of disembodying of humanity and really focusing on the mind, focusing on this God in the sky, and then shaming anything that was earthly and anything that was of the earth and about pleasure and about the body. Right. And I think you can see that kind of reflected in the cannabis market right now too. Right, right. And that, that keeps people out of the space, which I think is an important thing to discuss. More and more women are coming to cannabis because the research that we have and the, both the research and the anecdotal evidence that they're getting from their family and friends is that it has benefit for them. But oftentimes they enter a retail space and it's not supportive. Um, and oftentimes the products don't reflect what they're looking for. You know, there's a lot of pink washing in the cannabis industry too, where they kind of take like products that men generally like to use, the high THC products or whatever the products they're doing, and they kind of just like make it smaller and put it in a pink box <laughs> instead of really thinking about, you know, what a woman needs. And that's primarily because the men have been in the positions that are actually making the products and making the decisions about what comes to market. And so, so that keeps people out. And so 
I know that we need to make changes there, and part of that comes through policy change and access to capital and all of those things. And so I am happy to say that that change is happening. You know, it's not as bad as it used to be, but we've got a ways to go. And so what are some of the things that people can do from your perspective to get closer to the cannabis plant, Mm. (laughs) you know, while they feel like they don't have access to a market that supports them? Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm biased because I do a lot of just introducing people directly to plants and kind of keeping industry and capitalism out of it. I love the anti-capitalist opportunity of working with plants, working with local plants, and especially now here in Vermont, folks can grow their own plants in Mm -hmm. their backyard or form a relationship with a plant that somebody they know is growing. Um, And cannabis, you know, historically is is a deeply sacred plant. Mm -hmm. And I find it interesting and also troubling that a lot of these plants that were used in sacred ways and in ritual historically are being abused in in our current culture. Mm -hmm. And so I would encourage people to develop a a relationship with plants. And cannabis is one of those plants that emanates sovereignty. It has, you know, it grows to this height that's almost the human height. Um, It's very full when it's healthy. And I think it's a good chance to kind of like tap into your own sense of sovereignty. And so I would start there forming a relationship with plants. And at Spoonful Herbals, we teach a community herbalism apprenticeship, and we we talk with people about cannabis preparation. We usually have folks go home with a few plants to grow in their backyards if they mm-hmm. have good settings for that. And then we bring them all back together once um, the flowers are ready for trimming. And we often get folks who have worked in the cannabis industry, perhaps on a short-term basis, trimming on farms. And it's a culture shock for them because we sit around a table and um, have conversations while we're sort of honoring the plant. And um, it's very much a relational experience. And so a lot of times it's unpacking and healing the ways that their experiences with the cannabis industry, which is very fast paced and results driven and not about connecting to the plant before you start working with it. Um, We find that a lot of our apprentices get to have a a broader experience with the plant and find it very healing. Right. And so part of that leads into kind of just like bioregional herbalism as a whole. Talk about that a little bit in terms of like the importance of not just sourcing cannabis locally, but also just the other plants that are here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, I consider our approach to be bioregional in that we're working in this particular region and this particular ecology. And there's benefit to not only working with local plants because you get to meet them in the ground Mm -hmm. in their full glory, um, and there's the freshness factor to that. But also when we're consuming plants that have grown in our nearby environment, they're expressing a unique composition of molecules and chemicals to adapt to that environment, which is the same environment we're existing in. So I like to say that when we're consuming local plants, either for food or medicine, it's actually giving us a boost in our adaptive potential to stressors in our environment because plants are so much more tuned into that. Yes, for sure. And it's a way to to feel more rooted, feel our our feet on the ground through these plants that have deep roots. Right. And that brings us back to the idea that when we take that plant and extract it only for certain active ingredients, we're losing the benefits that plant has to offer in terms of its adaptive knowledge, which is transferable both chemically and energetically. Taking all of this together, I mean, I feel like 
we need to have that connection to the plants growing it ourselves. I don't know about need. It's nice to be able to. Not everybody has that opportunity. And there will be a marketplace. Um, that's not going away, mm-hmm. you know. And so what are, what are some of the ways that you kind of like see that space being able to evolve so that it really reflects the people who are trying to access it in a more of a, a feminist marketplace? What would that look like to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I really want to make it a marketplace about evolving humanity to be much more grounded and much more balanced and, you know, not sort of emphasizing competition and results in the mind. So really a marketplace that honors decolonial approaches to our bodies and each other. I think it would be more preparations that allow us to tap into the wisdom of our body, which is ultimately, I mean, the the, the endocannabinoid system is part of our machinery to begin with, Mm -hmm. and cannabis enhances that. So I talk a lot in my practice about the difference between being not sick and living a full and vibrant life. And there's there's a gap there. Mm -hmm. And our medical system is really focused on helping people not be sick. But what about living that full, vibrant, connected life? And I think that cannabis has the capacity to do that. And it is those preparations that tend to be higher in CBD, lower in THC, and kind of whole plant, ideally single origin plant, you know, where you're actually getting the expression that was produced in a natural environment. And, you know, the the problem that I see with the really high THC varieties is it's perpetuating that dissociated way of being on the earth. Right. It allows us to spiritually bypass this problematic culture that we're existing in. Mm -hmm. Whereas when we are able to integrate our mind and body, and I think cannabis in certain forms can do this really well, then it allows us to not only experience a full and vibrant life as individuals, but also contribute to a thriving community, which I know many of us would like to see. Right. And so when we talk about that dissociative effect, too, that just makes me think about there's a I don't want to say a good and a bad way <laughs> of doing that, but it's also a tool. You know, I understand what you're saying in terms of when we have these high THC intoxicating plants that it kind of um, takes us away from the present. And if you have a more balanced product or formula that it could actually do the opposite and make you more embodied in the present. And the cannabis plant does give you that ability to kind of dissociate from from the symptoms that you're looking to ease. You know, we heard that a lot in the medical market is that cannabis didn't necessarily get to the root cause of what was, it's not curative. You know, it's, it's, it's symptom relief. I know that also it acts on the the nervous system and on the immune system and it's involved with homeostasis, but it also kind of puts your discomforts in the background. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so there's some good dissociative qualities about it. And I guess it's how you use that dissociation, you know, whether you use it to kind of go away and not tap into reality or using it to actually create a space where you can maybe start to address some of the energetic things that are actually leading to that discomfort in the first place. And so mm-hmm. it's powerful in that way, mm-hmm. you know, and it's one of the things that when I talk to people now about approaching cannabis, especially people who are approaching it for the first time, uh, it's important to honor that power. You know, I know that cannabis has been called a master plant. I know that there's the 
troubles with that language too because it's got roots in slavery. Um, but what it means is that it's a teacher. It's got a lot of power. Mm-hmm. And it's something that we go to, you know, in acute situations. I think that we're learning now that we can use it in smaller doses and once in a more balanced form. Mm-hmm. It may be safe for an everyday use in small doses for things, but you know, historically, it's kind of been used for acute situations. And over time, when you have a powerful plant like that, it can actually be depleting if used for too long. Mm-hmm. And it can cause dependency. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it's something to be used with care and not necessarily all the time and mm-hmm. to be used in combination with other plants. And so I think that's one of the things that, that you know, we always try to teach people in terms of cannabis. It's like, hey, what, what are you coming to this plant for? <laughs> uh, and what other tools can you use to help you? in that, on that journey. Yeah. Yeah. And a big part of what I teach in my clinical practice and, and in apprenticeship is this idea of, of wellness sovereignty and how can you kind of develop, um, your skills for caring for your body, ideally from a place of internal power, you know, where, where you are taking responsibility for your comfort, not projecting that responsibility for comfort onto others. Right. Um, which is a big part of the patriarchy, honestly. Right. And I think that cannabis can be a great example of that as sort of learning what sort of experience um, is best for you, not only as an individual, but as a member of the collective. And learning to sort of curate that experience for yourself based on different experiences that you're looking for. I mean, to some extent, dissociating doesn't necessarily have to be a terrible thing if you're conscious about it. It's called titration, and it's a way of, like, working through and healing for trauma. We don't want to always be in challenging ourselves when sometimes we need to rest. Right. And so what is that balance? And, you know, part of privilege is being able to choose when we confront traumatic experiences right. um, and also acknowledging that, that not everyone has that choice right. to titrate through a challenging situation. Exactly. And getting back to that idea of yin and yang, too, in terms mm. of that rest, you know, mm-hmm. rest is the yin. Yes. And our culture really doesn't support people taking the time or having the privilege to do that, as you say. Yes. Yeah, so. I'm a big fan of Trisha Hershey's work and Rest as Resistance and the NAP ministry. And, and one of the things that Trisha Hershey says about rest is that it's not coming home exhausted at the end of your day and flopping down in front of Netflix. That's one form of dissociation. You know, rest is that place that we get to when body, mind are integrated and we are creative and we might have really wise, potent dreams that help shape our experience and shape the collective experience. And I think that humanity would really benefit from that kind of rest. Right. And I've had experiences often with cannabis as an ally that have gotten me to that place. Right. Well, we just lost one of the, he's called one of the godfather of modern cannabis research, um, Dr. Raphael Mishulam. Mm. Uh, he was the one who discovered the endocannabinoid system, identified CBD and THC for the first time. He just passed away at 93. And one of the things that he liked to say about cannabinoids, both endocannabinoids, which our body produces, uh, and phytocannabinoids, which we receive from plants, is that they help to relax, eat, sleep, forget, and protect. It gives us those mm. abilities, you know, and how important it is to be able to forget sometimes the the trauma yes. that we're living with uh, and, and it allows only, us to rest. <laughs> and if we're only using the plant for forgetting, which I think is a common way that it's used, yeah. um, then that's a way of bypassing and not being accountable. Right. 
All right. Well, you brought a poem <laughs> with you today that I'm honored that you would like to share here. So, yeah, I was thinking about, you know, some of the art that I might want to share as a way of kind of speaking about some of the themes that came up for me and thinking about this topic. And, you know, you talked about cannabis and the way it's often called a master. You know, I, I like to think about it as like mama cannabis or, or queen cannabis. Mm-hmm. That feels more relevant for me. And, you know, I, I think in what I've seen in myself and in my students, you know, one of the um, frameworks to think about the healing that's needed in our culture is that I think capitalism and the patriarchy socializes us to live in this way where it's almost like we're unmothered. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I do a lot of working with people around their inner critic and finding that like gentle nurturing inner parent, call it reparenting. It doesn't have to have a gender, but, you know, sort of coming back to that place of gentleness and mm-hmm. nurturing and tapping into that. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I wrote this piece from a lot of my experience professionally and personally It's called How to Violate a Woman. And, you know, I sort of preface the word woman by saying, you know, the word woman also means the earth and the divine feminine and all bodies and human genders. And for the purposes of this context, I think it could also mean mama cannabis. Excellent. And in this piece, we and us refers to the many of us who have been socialized in Eurocentric and patriarchal colonial culture. And I want to acknowledge that we are all capable of healing and liberating ourselves from this way of being and relating to ourselves and others. And it's really a prayer for that healing. So how to violate a woman. When a woman offers you access to her heart, to her body, to her well of juicy, nourishing abundance, we are taught to take it, to revel in the gift that God's glory has offered, especially for us, in that moment, to soak up pleasure and comfort, to anesthetize and externalize our pain. This is our, quote, God-given right. Or is it? We are taught to believe that we have earned abundance and pleasure purely by existing, that if we follow the rules or look a certain way, this is our birthright. We are taught that any woman denying our access to this right is a bitch or a prude, We are taught that boundaries are a nuisance or a fabricated challenge to be manipulated past. We are taught that anyone who teases and skillfully meets out doses of pleasure is a temptress, slut, witch. She must be tamed, controlled, broken down, and owned as swiftly as possible. This is rape culture. This is settler colonialism, claiming bodies as commodities to feed insatiable, hungry ghosts born of self-neglect and projection and the childish assumption that we cannot comfort and please ourselves. This capitalist constructed myth of scarcity and competition to get our needs met. Mother Earth and many of the fecund landscapes and seas that feed us have also been exploited in this way, her generosity and gifts taken woefully for granted. The opportunity for sacred, respectful communion overlooked and the rush for conquest and instant satisfaction, to fill the void. Will we ever know the ecstasy that is possible if we love her well? When you shower her with honor and reverence until she willingly opens, inflamed with bliss, 
to receive you and return the deluge? Abundance is a gift and a responsibility. It is not a cheap reward given by a Christian God to a few who look like him. When we externalize and feel blindly entitled to comfort and pleasure from others, we are not taking responsibility for cultivating it within ourselves. We become complicit in violent extractivism. And we miss out on the gift and power of sovereignty in the race to satisfy the empty greed of tyranny. May we end the cycle of violation and codependence in our lifetimes. Blessed be. Blessed be. Catherine, thanks for being here. I really appreciate your voice. And uh, I look forward to talking to you soon because <laughs> I feel like we got a lot more to talk about. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank <laughs> right. you. Yes, thank you. And I do need to check. Um, I was just thinking as we were talking that what I attributed to Audre Lorde, I think, is actually attributed to Bell Hooks, oh, okay. who was at Oberlin College. Okay. Um, so it was Bell Hooks who combined patriarchy and capitalism and imperialism all under one umbrella. Excellent. Well, thanks again. And we'll talk soon. Wonderful. All right. (laughs) Bye-bye. That'll do it for this episode. Thanks go out to my creative crew at High Fidelity, Olaf Willoughby and Shane Lynn, and to the team at Syntax in Motion for producing this show. A special shout out to Will Davis, my sound engineer. Thanks to you for listening to us today. If you enjoy what you heard, subscribe on our website, hi5vt.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Better yet, like, share, rate, or leave a comment. You can request topics or interviews for our show by emailing us at bewell at high5et.com. We'd love to hear from you. Until then, be well and have fun out there.